Hey there, it's Sarah Shaw, and I am here with Grace Bonney today, who is the founder of Design Sponge. And I'm really excited to be here with you today, so thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm really excited to talk. Yeah, so am I. I'm just going to tell everyone a little bit about your, um, your, your background. Just, you know, I'm sure people are really familiar with your website. I'm um, just going to give them a few little stats. Um, sure. So, yeah, Design Sponge um, was founded way back in 2004, and it unbelievably reaches over 2 million readers per day now, which is very impressive. And, and Grace came, you know, came to this after working as a contributing editor at different publications such as House and Garden and Domino, one of my all-time favorite magazines, and, and Craft Magazine. And she's really passionate about supporting all members of the creative community. In fact, she actually runs an annual scholarship for up-and-coming designers. She writes a free business column for creatives and is also the host of a weekly radio show called After the Jump, which reaches over 500,000 listeners per episode. And she wrote her first book, Design Sponge at Home, which was a national bestseller and has over 100,000 copies in print, maybe even more by now. And I'm really excited to talk to her today, and we're going to talk a little bit about her new book called In the Company of Women that's coming out next month in October. So thanks so much again for being with me. Thank you. Um, yeah, so let's, let's kind of go back a little bit and sort of start at the beginning and talk about how you even like came up with the idea of starting Design Sponge. Because, you know, back in 2004, I mean, the Internet was, you know, it was getting there, right? People had been online for a while, and, um, you know, there still wasn't really any social media to speak of, you know, um, Friendster. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so you know so kind of going out on your own after you know having having worked in the editorial world and starting this company you know must have been a little daunting I imagine um, in the beginning so tell us a little bit how you got started with that sure it, it's funny because so I actually started the blog before I worked at magazines and most of I think that would have been very different if those magazines had existed when I started the blog because Domino didn't open I think until maybe two or three years after I started Design Sponge, and I, I was really looking for that aesthetic. I was looking for something that felt younger, that felt like it embraced sort of a DIY aesthetic, and that didn't really exist um, online, let alone in print or in TV. And I had moved to New York after graduating from college in Virginia and really wanted to work in design but didn't have any sort of, you know, like resume to pull from. I was super young with no experience, and... So I started the blog as like a, basically a pastime during my lunch break at my regular job, and I was working in a very, very tiny PR firm that represented sort of big mid-century design clients. And so I was writing press releases, and then during my lunch break, writing about things I would see around my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I think there just wasn't anybody writing about that particular style that we all are so familiar with now, but the mm -hmm. idea of handmade work and DIY stuff, like that just wasn't being respected or represented in traditional media. So I wanted to write about what I was not seeing everywhere else. And I think that really just took off. And back in 2004, I think apartment therapy had been open for maybe a year and the Canadian site Moco Loco. But for the most part, I think there were just maybe four or five of us who were blogging. And so I think like most early adopters, we all really benefited from being there kind of before everybody else showed up. And so right, I, I think ground, back ground now, up. 
Yeah, I think back now to how different things would be if I was trying to start a blog right now. And I, I don't know if I would start one right now, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's just, it was a totally different landscape then. Were you, were you doing, um, I mean, like how did you even come up with the idea of like the DIY space? I mean, were you really crafty as a kid, were, you know, or in college or you know, as a young adult? Were you, were you super into that kind of stuff or did it just sort of pop into your head and thought you'd start it right then? I, I think like I'm most young people, I think when you want to decorate your house or decorate anything, whether it's like your wardrobe or the stuff you have to carry with you, and you don't have any money, DIY is just a given. It's sort of, it, I mean, I think it kind of has taken on this like very noble undertone now to sort of embracing a more like eco-friendly lifestyle. But DIY is your only alternative when you don't have money to buy things that are pre-made or of higher quality. And so the first thing you do is, is turn to what can you do with your own two hands. And so when I was younger, I was really into collaging things. And then I got really into printmaking in college and ended up majoring in that. And I've always really enjoyed kind of painting and putting together things, but I've never been like a real crafty craft person. Like I would, I don't usually like sit down and decide I'm going to like, you know, sew my own tablecloth or something. And I wish (laughs) I had those skills, but as I got older and yeah, and got into blogging, I just, I really ended up finding myself so fascinated by the giant learning curve that was running a business. And then at the end of the day, the business part of design sponge ended up being what I spent most of my time on. And then I fell in love with kind of the people behind all of the products we were writing about, and then that kind of informed where the site moved from the first few years of being essentially kind of a, a list of products and cool stuff to kind of getting into the deeper issues that come with running a business. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the business part since you mentioned it. Sure. Um, so, so what was that like for you? I mean, obviously you were just out of college. You didn't have a ton of of probably business background, especially being a printmaking major. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just I'm just guessing. And um and so how how did it you know how did that whole business side work for you? You know, kind of starting the online business and you know what was what were the business components that you were experiencing? Well, they were primarily failure. <laughs> they were really <laughs> about. I mean, you know, if I had been a printmaking major that actually got some business education, I would have been in a better position. But I had this real kind of feeling, and and this is gone now because most bloggers kind of embrace the idea of sponsored content and having to make money, and like nobody seems to question that. But when I was starting, there was a real kind of demand for purity of content that I still feel very strongly about. But the reality is that you have to make money at a certain point. And I think for me, when it really became a business was when I realized I wanted to hire other people to write for me. And it mm. wasn't because I like needed a team, but I just wanted to talk about things that I knew I was in no way an expert on. And so I hired people to write about food and to write about DIY and things that I loved but just didn't do on my own. And you can't pay people if you don't make any money. So I started putting ads on the site. And, I mean, that was very controversial for years. There was a whole movement of people who put up these badges that said ad-free blog. And I mm. totally understood where they were coming from. But I knew that I wanted to grow Design Sponge and that hiring people would be a part of that. Um, so I think in the beginning, it was really difficult for me to figure out where the line was between really editorial parody and the idea that you have to work with sponsors in some way to pay people. So I made a lot of mistakes in that area. I made a ton of tax mistakes. I just, everything I could have possibly done wrong, I did. And that was half of what inspired me to start um, the series I used to run called Biz Ladies, which 
was informed by all of the mistakes I made and then kind of meeting up for friends for drinks and then hearing about the things they were dealing with and realizing we were all facing the same problems of trying to figure out how you run a business when when it comes to blogs. I mean, there was no there, there was no path to follow for that. No one sure, had done of course. that. Right. Um, and, it's, and especially with a team, because in the beginning, there were tons of like personal bloggers, and I think like Heather from Deuce was a real idol of mine. And, but when you're a single-person business, it's a very different business structure than if you're hiring other people and you know, managing health insurance and all that sort of stuff. So I didn't have anybody to talk to, and then I realized none of us had anybody to talk to. So I've always felt that one of my strengths was being able to connect people because I know that I don't have the answers to everything, but I tend to know the people who do have the answers. And so I wanted to be able to get everyone in a room together. So I started this series where we would travel across the country and women could come for free and like have snacks and talk to people who knew a lot about taxes or marketing or PR and get this great free advice, kind of build up a local support network and then take that home and kind of move forward with it. And that to me kind of, that made, my, made me take myself a little bit more seriously as a business owner. Um, I think that was like around 2007 or 2008. And from that point forward, I realized that if I wanted to support the people who wrote for me, it meant I had to take the site really seriously as a business. That's, I mean, I, I had just written down, you know, as you were talking, I was like, mentor, question mark. But then I realized yeah. I'm now listening to you, right? I'm just thinking, you know, wow, you guys really mentored each other, which is really a special way to learn, I think. You know, yeah, learning I, from, your, from your peers who are, you know, if somebody's good at accounting but doesn't mm-hmm. have their own business, it doesn't mean they can't teach you, you know, whatever you need to know about accounting or, you know, sales or different things like that. Exactly. And I think the term mentor, sometimes it takes on this kind of grandiose vision of like someone who's much older and wiser and kind of hands mm-hmm. down, you know, like little pieces of wisdom as they go along. And, and that's wonderful if you can find it. But it, that can be very difficult. And especially if you're working in an industry that's really only been a thing for like a decade, you're not going to yeah. find anybody who's been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And so <laughs> learning from each other it was a necessity. And I, I'm so thankful that so many bloggers early on, like none of us really considered each other a competition. And I learned so much from and people like Joy Cho from Ojoy and Victoria mm-hmm. from SF Girl. Like we all really just supported each other and still do. And we're open and honest about, you know, ad costs and pricing and figuring out how to manage teams and things like that. And those peers are and always will be kind of the people that I look to when I need support. It's so great. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I always think back to, I often think back to when I had my handbag company, you know, I started in 1997. And there were, there was, you know, again, nobody for me to talk to, because there weren't really any um, support groups, you know, or, you know, ladies who launched at the point at that time hadn't started yet. And, you know, there weren't any other, there weren't like specific, you know, people I could hire, you know, and I used to, mm-hmm. re- I remember thinking, oh my God, I wish I could just hire someone to teach me this, you know, as I'm like tromping around downtown LA, like trying to, you know, ask people questions and, you know, sneaking inside the mart, and, you know, when it was market week and looking for people's line sheets and postcards yeah. and stuff and just like taking them and running back to my office and I'm like, okay, how can I translate this into my product, you know? And, uh, and really having that trial and error learning mm-hmm. is, I think, I think it's also really helpful for oneself and really beneficial when you can have your own trial and error, you know, like it sounds like you did in the beginning, you know, kind of before you hooked up with this, 
these these groups and and really trying trying things out and seeing what fails and you know picking yourself and then being willing to pick yourself up again and say all right there's got to be a way other people are doing it you know so I've got to figure out how they're doing it and now I got to figure out who they are so I can talk to them and get their secrets. <laughs> Yeah, because I think the interesting thing about support within this particular community of especially female business owners in the art and design world is that unlike sort of, you know, tech businesses or large corporations where they have, you know, a pretty sizable budget budget to play around with, we all understand what it feels like to really be kind of running things by the skin of your teeth and to know yeah. that there's there's no room for error. So if we can keep each other from avoiding, you know, pitfalls that we don't have to fall into, um, I think that's been really beneficial because I've made a ton of mistakes and felt like, okay, well, I can tell you, okay, don't don't go there because you're going to fall. You know, it's it's a great way to be able to help each other out. And I think we just we all really understand what it's like to try to make this happen with without like you know venture capital money or something. Exactly. Well, so speaking of biggest mistakes, um, <laughs> I'll tell you one of mine if you tell me one of yours. Sure. So you know when I, I one of the things you know that I'm sure you probably thrive on in your life and then also you know in how you help other people when you're you know when you're if you're you're kind of mentoring when I say mentor I don't mean officially but when you guys are sharing information you know in your group is and I really it's one of the reasons I started my business was because I did have you know like you it sounds I mean I made every mistake under the sun when I had my handbag company I mean big and small and some things that I just could never I couldn't fix and mm-hmm. the biggest thing that ever that I ever did was when I brought on investors and I, I incorporated my company, I filed the trademark under the name of the company, not myself, uh-huh. so that Got when it. I lost my company and the company um, was closed, the trademark died with the company and I could never get it back. That was my own name. Oh, oh that's hard. <laughs> so... You know, so it's, you know, it's like one of the things I always say to clients right away is, you know, you need to trademark this, but you need to trademark it in your own name, not the name of the company, and you can license it to the company, you know, but you need to be able to retain ownership of your own name. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, if it is their name, if it's just the name of the company, it's not as big a deal, but, um, but it does give you leverage. So that, that was one of the, that was probably the biggest, mistake that I made that I actually couldn't rectify, <laughs> um, yeah. except for the fact that I am me. So when I, it doesn't really matter in a sense, but still I can't ever own the trademark to my own name. I understand how that feels. I've made so many mistakes that were of that variety of just things that can't necessarily be changed that you just kind of have to make work. And that's, that's a part of it. And it sucks, but I'm, I'm so used to that. But I think, I think the biggest mistake that I've ever made was is one that I continue to work on. And it's a bit more amorphous, but it's, it's the idea that I, I don't think I'm very good all the time at being incredibly clear about what I need and what I want from my team. And I think that I've, I've really struggled as sort of a leader. I feel like I'm used, I'm an only child. I'm really used to working alone. And so the idea of having to tell somebody else that their writing needs to be better or different or, you know, especially having to check in with people when they're kind of slacking off, it's just, it's not something that comes really naturally to me. And I honestly feel so lucky and so happy to work with the people that I do that when I need to do things like that, I just, I tend to get a little too soft and a little too like, oh, if you don't mind. And I I, I sort of apologize and give them an out before I really communicated what I want. And I always felt like, well, that only hurts me. So it's no big deal. But in reality, 
when I'm not clear and direct with the people that I work with, there's no way they can ever possibly fulfill the things that I actually want done because I'm not being clear about them. And right. I kind of realized that a few years ago, and thankfully some of my team members were like, hey, you know, you can just tell us that you don't like that or this didn't work out and you're disappointed. Like we'd rather just know what your vision is and be able to, to work towards that. And that was really hard for me because I had thought that me being like a little too soft and polite about things was actually helping them, but it was actually hurting them. And so that's something I still work on all the time. And it's one that has like big ripple down effects because people really need to feel like the person that they are working with or working for has a clear vision of, of where they're going. And I think when that feels a little muddy, it's, it's easy to kind of become disenchanted with, with working there. Sure, and you also want to um, feel like you're pleasing the person that you're working for, you know, and that yeah. you're being successful at your own job just for, for your own well-being, I think, or own mental well-being. Yeah, and I think um, so many of us as bloggers, we feel really lucky to be able to do, it, to do the job we do, and, and we all are. I mean, you know, for any of us to even have a job in this economy is really difficult, and then to have one that is so fun and, and just, and so sort of just like great and exciting is a big deal. And so I think mm-hmm. when I've talked with a lot of other blogger friends, we all kind of feel like how, how could we ask people to do more? Like it's just we can't do that. But then we all came from jobs and offices where our bosses didn't care if we were friends with them and they never cared about making us happy. It was about whatever right. the assignment was and getting it done. And so I think somewhere in between those two ends is where I, I'm trying to, to be as a boss. It sounds like you're an awesome boss. <laughs> I mean, I, I think. I'll, I mean, I think that. I mean, I know I struggled with that when I had my handbag company as well. You know, because I I had about five people working for me. I think you probably have way more, but I. Um, but it it is hard to sometimes to be clear, especially if you're you're you know originally you're used to doing it all on your own, so you know how everything in your mind is supposed to go, and yeah. you know, and if you're a real self starter, which is obviously you are and and I am too it it, I think it can be hard because there's a part of your mind that's just saying oh I could just do it myself it would just take me one second but this person I have to explain to this person how to do it because it's their job and I really shouldn't be doing this and you can end up having a whole conversation (laughs) that takes up like 15 minutes in your mind before you actually even tell them you know instruct them and tell them what to do so that they're their job is, you know, is done better and that they can be more successful at it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think a lot of people struggle with that. I spoke to Tina, Trina Turk a couple of weeks ago and she actually talked a lot about that as well um, and said, I, you know, that she struggles with not micromanaging everybody. And, you know, I think you guys both have a really definitive sense of design and style that, you know, that your brand is known for and so I can you know I can see how protecting that and growing that and keeping keeping the movement going in the direction you want is also really important as well as making your team members feel successful yeah it's and it's a moving target it's something that changes constantly and as the aesthetic and as our goals of design sponge change what I'm asking of our team members changes too and so it's it's asking them to adapt, you know, every year or so as much as it is me having to adapt. So that's just mm-hmm. something I'm constantly get practice at. <laughs> I mean, well, I commend you for working on something like that. So many people just, you know, would sweep it under the carpet and just say, well, I'm the boss and I can just, you know, do whatever I want. And, it, it, <laughs> and You know what I mean? There's so many people out there, right? We've all had those bosses at some point in our younger life. So, um, and I know people who still struggle with that. 
Um, so now that we talked about your biggest mistake and or something that you you know work on constantly to improve yourself, let's talk about what your first biggest success was with Design Sponge and kind of what helped you and helped you realize that you were onto something big with this, you know, and that and that you encouraged you to keep going with it, you know, because being being in kind of first to market with the idea must have been, in a sense, a little lonely because there wasn't, wasn't <laughs> like, you know, it's not like you go to a store and you see 20 pairs of shoes, right? You'd be like going in and seeing one pair and wondering what the shoe was, you know, what you're supposed to do with the shoe. So how, how did you, you know, what was your first biggest success and how did you know that you were onto something big? Um, I think to be quite honest, I think that the biggest success and probably the thing to date that I've been proudest of was launching the BizLady series, which originally started as a sort of eight-city national tour, which I just funded myself and traveled and got those people together, and then it, it was free. And I, I mean, I, I continue to be somebody who really has to work hard to be comfortable in a large group of people, and especially if I'm going to initiate that and be the person who's at, at the center of all that. It's something that I really have to, to continue to, like, practice to, to be good at. And I remember the first time I, I held the first Biz Ladies meeting in Brooklyn and I walked upstairs and it sounded like there was like a party going on and there were so many voices <laughs> and I just thought like there must be some other event going on that can't possibly be everybody here for this and there were over 100 women and I think I had actually only RSVP like 15 so I was <laughs> expecting this tiny group and and they all looked at me like, great, like, say something, lead us. And I was like, uh, and then I made everyone go around and say their name and what they did. And it was the biggest waste of time. And I just remember thinking like, oh, you've thrown yourself in the deep end. You've got to figure this out. But it was, it continues to be the best challenge I've ever done because it not only showed me that there was this sort of unsolved problem within our community and a niche of people that needed a lot of help and community support. But it also showed me that like, I'm actually far more interested in the people and the businesses behind the design objects than I am the objects themselves. Because for me, I, I burned out really quickly on the idea of just talking about stuff. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, love, I love a great chair. I love a beautiful fabric. I love all those things. I just, after five or six years, that at a certain point, I was like, I'm just telling people what to shop for, and that just didn't feel right. like it had enough meaning to me. And um, and there are plenty of people who find meaning behind that, and that's great. But for me, I just when I tapped into this idea of all these women starting things and you know giving up their careers or starting second and third and fourth careers and doing this while having kids, it just it kind of blew my mind open to all these people that I was already writing about, but just found so much more fascinating once I got to know their personal story. And so that series really blew up and so much so that we ended up turning it into a weekly column because there was just no financial way or just like health-wise I could actually travel to every mm -hmm. city all the time. And that <laughs> oh, series really, it, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and that, that series, you know, sparked so many collaborations and new businesses and helped people launch companies and to have those people continually check in with me over the years to be like, hey, you wrote about me back in 2008 and now I have like a 20-person team and I'm showing a fashion week or something. Moments like that, I mean, I could let everything else go and just live for those mm -hmm. moments because that means so much to me. And that kind of showed me the direction I wanted to move in and led me to write the book that I just wrote that's coming out in October because I just realized I feel so much more fulfilled when I'm helping people kind of follow their dreams than I do when I'm just talking about the stuff that they make. And I will continue to always talk about the stuff that they make, but I just, I really care about knowing the backstory. 
Yeah, I love that. And so I was just about to say, is this what gave you the idea for writing me in the company of women? Because it sounds like this was your total lead in and that this book, you know, I was going to ask you how you got the idea for this book, but I realized that it all came out of, out of this business group that you started and, and, and that you, you know, took an interest in these people's lives. So, so talk about that a little bit more and, and how, um, you know, how, how did you even, like, figure out who, who to put in the book? I mean, it sounds like you probably met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women over the years in this group and, and that you, you know, were able to distill it down into, um, is it 100 women in the book? It's, I think, 107, technically. 100, but okay, I knew it was somewhere over around there. Over 100 is what I go with, usually. Yeah. And, um, um, and, and so, you know, and they all look so, they look like people, you're just like, oh, my God, I, re- I wish their phone number was there. I just want to call them, you know? I feel the same <laughs> way. I, I felt the same way. I really wanted to get everyone together for, like, a like slumber party just to hang out and talk and dish and all of that. And, and, and getting to meet them felt a little bit like that. And. And it honestly, it was all inspired partially by the Biz Lady series because that was a big part of it. But it was also in the same way that Design Sponge was inspired by not seeing what I wanted to see. I felt like there were so many great business books for women coming out. And the market had kind of represented like, oh, hey, there's this whole sort of culture of women starting businesses and, you know, quote, unquote, girl power and things like that. And they really wanted to embrace it. But the books that were getting written and the people that were getting profiled all looked exactly the same to me. They all looked like, mm-hmm. you know, like pretty much like people in their late 20s, early 30s, white women, thin, successful, straight. And I just kind of felt like, oh, well, but there are so many more women with interesting stories <laughs> that don't look like that. And those mm-hmm. are all great women to profile, but just uh, I wanted to see more. And I felt like in our community alone, the number of people we were talking to who had completely different backgrounds than that type of person was just being ignored. And I felt like I just kept waiting for that book to come out and then realized oh, I might need to be somebody who makes that book and <laughs> right, or makes yeah. an example of what that could be. Um, right. And so I just I sat down on a piece of paper and I wrote down what I thought would be a couple names. And then within an hour, I'd written down 100 names. And of that 100, I think only 20 of those people are actually in the book because I looked at the list and realized, oh, it's easy for me to fall into that trap too. And half the people I'd written down were people within my age range who were white, who had financial backing. And, mm. and those people are great. But when you start a business, not everybody's coming from that point of view. And I wanted sure. there to be such a variety of stories of people who were coming to this later in life, who had no funding. Um, those are just important sort of aspects of the business process to tell. So then I started sitting down to think, okay, well, I also know very little about, let's say, like Native American women in the arts community, and why don't I know more about them, and why aren't they written more about? And then it became a research process of trying to find information on communities of people that I just hadn't done enough work to learn about. And then my list of 100 turned into a list of 400, and then I had to kind of look at it and say, how many people can I fit, and who do I think kind of best represents maybe one aspect of business that I'd like to make sure is in the book, whether it's like, you know, having a third and fourth career or somebody who didn't get back in the workforce until they had like raised three kids. Like I wanted to make sure that all these stories were in there. So it was a very careful editing process, but to be honest, it was actually quite easy. And I accepted on like, there are going to be a lot of people I wish I could have included. And, you know, that's just more great content for the website at some point. Right. Right, or, or, or another, was, or a follow-up book. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really it was a a much easier process than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, uh, I mean it's such a diverse 
you know, just even, you know, if you flip through and just look at the pictures of the people and, you know, going from the sparse to the cluttered and the colorful and the black and white and, and the different spaces that people live in, you know, old, young, tattoos, you know, colored skin, not colored skin, you know, yeah. and it's just such an amazing um, amalgamation of people that just visually, you know, I think it's really interesting, you know, um, and I just, I just, I just, I mean, I've, I read a lot of the people's stories and, um, and it was really, um, it was fascinating to me, you know, just, just Thank to you. look yeah, at Yeah, I, I found that just so fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny, it's like what, what you were saying about having built this list of 400 people and, you know, when you, when, I mean, if I think about that, you know, I'm like, wow, looking, looking through, I mean, that's a lot of research and a lot of, um, you know, time to take a look at outside your, you know, the list of people that you had from your uh, class and your business group and, you know, and taking a, and distilling this down into different categories and then choosing from those categories just must have been, I can I understand how it could have been easy too, but it must have also been hard, you know. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work and a lot of difficult decisions, but I think that's actually the work situation I enjoy the most. Like, I really enjoy editing and, you know, quote-unquote curating, and I, I enjoy mm-hmm. that behavior because it really makes me think about the things that are most important to me because it's easy to get swayed by thinking someone is just super cool or having, like, just a personal, like, relationship with them. And I have so many friends I wish I could have included in the book who I really admire as business owners, but at a certain point you have to think about, like, okay, well, this person's story has kind of already been told three or four times over in these persons mm-hmm. and these stories. So at some point you have to kind of make some cuts. And they were hard, but it was, it was all in, in the interest of serving, you know, the reader. And so that made it a lot easier. Do you, do you think that your time, you know, working in that PR firm and working for the magazines, um, you know, as a contributing editor at all, helped you be able to make those choices in a different way than you might have been if you didn't have any training in that background? Um, I think my magazine background served me so much more on the business end of things than it did that part, because when when you're a contributing editor, you're not editing anything. You're actually just being assigned pieces and then writing them. And so I really didn't get a lot of editorial say when I worked for Matt, which I was fine with because I had Design Sponge. And so it was this place where I could go home and write about and choose whatever I wanted. And then I would go to work and have things assigned to me, which was also fun. It was just a very different working experience. But I think for me, what I took away from magazines more than anything was just how important it is to have a clear editorial voice because that's what people go back to. And it's difficult to build loyalty on the Internet because there are so many options. But I learned early on, when I worked at House and Garden, the editor-in-chief then was Dominique Browning, who's also in my book, who's a, a big sort of mentor for me. And Dominique's editor's letter at the beginning of every magazine was the thing we consistently heard from people about the most. People would write letters and say, I just love her writing. I love her tone of voice. I love what her letters represent. And so if the style of the magazine changed or the things they wrote about changed, there was still that consistency of voice. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've carried with me over the last 12 years of blogging was that 
I can change and my personal style can change, but as long as people trust and feel consistency in my voice and sort of my honesty and being forthright on the Internet, I think that carries through. And that, for me, is very loud in, in this book. And so that, that meant a lot to me. That's a really great I mean, point to bring up, too, and, and I commend you for that. And it's, I think that most, most people, doesn't matter what kind of online business they have, whether it's a product-based company or service or a blog you know, or a DIY um, website, is, is finding that voice and sticking with it. And I think so mm-hmm. many people struggle in the beginning to find that voice um, and, and what's going what, what's to really convey who they are as a person and who the company is. You know, and mm-hmm. um, I, I just I meet people all the time who struggle with that, and it's um, it's you know some I just usually say to people you're just gonna have to start writing, you know, or you're gonna have to if you really can't write or speak, <laughs> you know, essentially you're gonna have to get someone to do it for you who can help you develop a voice that you can stick to that feels comfortable, so that when you actually talk about yourself or your business, it all feels cohesive. Um, yeah, and it's okay to, to write things that you don't love like five years. Like, I, I don't think there's a single post I can look back on except for maybe I, one I wrote like yesterday or something and not cringe <laughs> a little bit about. About like in the yeah. beginning I definitely felt like I needed to be like funnier in a way that I don't think I am in writing. And that was like, – I was reading a lot of political blogs and they were all really snarky and kind of tongue-in-cheek and I thought – okay, well, this is what bloggers do, and I, I need to sound like this. And that's just not how I actually talk in real life. And so that was a, a difficult transition. But I think it's good to let that stuff stand because, I mean, I was 23 when I started my blog, and I'm 35 mm-hmm. now. There's no way I'm going to sound the same way I did when no. I was fresh out of college. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, too. I know. I, I think actually when I got out of college, and I was like, God, I really, you know, I might not feel different than when I was 22, but I certainly am different yeah, and think, exactly. think differently. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, it's that, whole, it's that whole, you know, desire to evolve and grow and, and encompass what you learn and experience in your life to help you become the next generation of yourself. You know, yeah, at the absolutely. same time, right, you know, re- regenerating every part of your life, you know, it's, um, it's kind of that, you know, seven-year itch thing, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's like, yeah, every seven years you kind of, you know, regenerate, you know, my kids are always like, mommy, I'm seven now, this was last year, and yes. uh, my, ta- my taste buds have changed, that's why I don't <laughs> like that anymore, <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, I don't think nice try. I'm not quite sure they've changed. Yeah, let's try it at 14. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but you know, I had to laugh because it, they had heard that somewhere. You know, at your taste buds change every seven years, and that's why I don't like sausage anymore or whatever it was. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, let's just talk about that in another seven years. Um, but but it's interesting, kind of how it struck me actually, like at at their age that they were astute enough to even notice that something could change in their life. And, and that, you know, I realized that we all may have had that when we were little, you know, that you realize very early on that you, you know, I wasn't conscious of it and maybe you weren't either, maybe, maybe you were, but that, you know, as you're growing up that you're, you're conscious, you're, you're not, I was never conscious that I was changing and evolving as I got older, you know, until I was, probably in my 20s. Um, 
and, and that it mattered because it never really mattered. You know, it was just like got up and went to school and came home, did my homework and played and went to bed. You know, it was kind of your, your life as a kid, you know, is not, you're not, most kids aren't sitting down to write a novel or, you know, writing articles for the newspaper when they're eight, you know, eight or nine, very yeah. few and far between. So, um, but I think it's, it's interesting to look at how your life does evolve over time. And, well, and it's an interesting, it's an it. interesting, yeah, comment on sort of just internet culture in general because I mean most people aren't writing novels and most people aren't writing, you know, personal websites. Like they they might have a Facebook page or things like that, but that's very different than needing to present what now people are calling a personal brand. And I think bloggers mm-hmm. who are, have started in let's say the last five years immediately understand the importance of having like their own voice and their own style and their own branding. And it's all about like how do you present yourself as a person but also a package. And that's something that kind of forces you to like solidify who you are. And so I always wonder like what's going to happen to these kids who've kind of come up now and are establishing themselves and what's going to happen in 10 years. Like they don't want to dress the same way and they don't want to talk the same way and they've built that brand. And it's, I just hope they've built in some flexibility and understanding for themselves because it's, it's really hard not to give yourself room to evolve. And I fell into that trap big time and then realized nobody was holding me to that except myself because I just thought like, well, my brand is this. And what if they find out that I don't actually wear pink in real life? Like what's going to happen? And I realized (laughs) nobody's going to care. It's okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I changed the name. I was my company was Entrepreneur for you know nine years, and I just decided to change it to Sarah Shaw Consulting because I didn't feel like Entrepreneur was me anymore, you know. And I yeah. just built a new site and changed the name, and I was like, all right, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and life goes and, on, and it's totally right, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's actually I love it. You know, I love that evolving part of life and looking at you know what's next and what, you know, what, what are you doing to challenge yourself and how do you keep up with, how do you keep up with yourself at times, right? You know, sometimes your brain and your uh, mind, right, you can go a lot faster than you can either physically or mentally, you know, with whatever you're doing and, or time, you know, times against you or something like that. And, and you can't actually do anything really quickly, but you can, you know, start to create and develop your future, you know, as you evolve as a person, which I think is yeah, so great. Absolutely. And the internet makes it so easy too. You know, it's, um, it's so much easier to create something and let your, you know, current followers, it's not as easy to get new people as it used to be years ago. But, you know, the people that you've, who follow you now, you know, it's so much easier to let them know in a nanosecond, right, press a button, and they all, you know, the ones who read it all learn whatever it is you want to tell them about yourself or your company or, you know, the next thing that's coming out, right, when you're ready, when your book comes out, you're just going to push a button, and you'll let all your subscribers know that it's on the shelf, and they can purchase it, (laughs) you know, it's not like you have to write personal postcards to people anymore, and, um, and let everybody know manually, um, like we did, you know, not, not that long ago, um, you know, back in 2000, which is only 16 years ago, you know, yeah. it wasn't the same as it is now. Um, and well, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned social media. So how, how does social media play a role in your business? You know, it's, it's, I saw some things on your site. I don't know how old the classes were that you taught, but that you taught some classes on social media and so I'm assuming you're a super smarty about it. 
and, uh, you know, and so how do you, how do you use that nowadays, you know, to promote your business and, you know, what, what do you find is most important and, you know, any tips and tricks that you've got going? Sure. I think, well, I think the bottom line is social media is an absolute must for any business. I just think period. I think there's just way too much opportunity there to miss out on. And I think it's, it's okay to not want to use it obsessively like a lot of people do. And it's okay to not want to like pre-plan your posts and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think it should only be what you are actually interested in. I think most people feel like, oh, I have to be on every different Way to do it, and I try to do that, but that's because I my job is running a business on the internet. I think if you're somebody who's, you know, let's starting a fashion company or something like that, you should pick the two channels that you actually enjoy using, and then just put all your effort into those because so many people spread themselves too thin, and then it starts to become like it's a job. And and, and you mm-hmm. know, like updating Instagram shouldn't be a job. It should be a fun thing that you can do when you have time. And I always suggest. I always tell people to kind of batch upload things, which I know can sometimes not be everybody's sort of favorite idea because you're not doing it in the moment. But if you're running your own business, you don't have time to sort of be attached to your phone and being like, oh, wait, it's two hours later. I need to update something to Instagram. You need to be able to have tools to make that work for you. So I personally like to be able to batch edit things and make updates that I know I will want to share during the week but may not be attached to my phone at the time when I think I should put it up. So I like to batch edit things as much as possible. Um, I also just really pay attention to what I think com- connects community because if you're, if you're just projecting, if you're just saying like, I like this or I don't like this or here's this thing happening with my business, if you don't engage in the community at all, it's very quick how, how you will quickly lose footing. And so mm-hmm. I'm always trying to see, okay, well, what type of content encourages people to talk or whether it's good or bad, like what actually gets people to be engaged, and then how do I make that work for me? Because I don't want to produce content that I don't actually like. So just because people like you know, posts about weddings or something doesn't mean I'm suddenly going to only post weddings. It just means, okay, sure. they're responding to this type of thing. How can I work that into what I'm already doing? And so, so much of what I like to do just responds to what causes people to talk and how do I make that a bigger part of what I do. And it the hard thing is that it changes all the time. So what gets people to be engaged last year won't be what gets them to be engaged the next year. And you always have to course correct, which can be exhausting. And so mm-hmm. unless you <laughs> are really into that platform, it can feel like work. So that's why I always say, like, just pick one or two that you like and stick with those. And for me, that's Instagram and Twitter. And I, I do use Facebook, and I, I really enjoyed the Facebook Live videos because – they can't be fancy and well-produced. They really have to kind of be very DIY, and you have to shoot right. them like with a phone or an iPad. And yeah. So they kind of all look a little bit crummy, which I, I love because people really quickly started producing like really high-end videos for like YouTube and things like that, and it just I just couldn't keep up with that, and it wasn't something I felt really comfortable with, but I loved how kind of informal that was, and for the same reason I'm loving like the Instagram stories because they're just so relatable, and I think mm-hmm. every every brand can benefit from being a little bit relatable. I mean, even like on fashion week following like the Oscar de la Renta Instagram feed, like being able to see like the real world moments of them setting up runway shows, it just gives you a different like view into that company. And so Mm -hmm. I I think embracing those things when they feel right for you is always a good idea. Yeah, it's almost like you get to spy on people. 
without yeah. really spying on them. You know, I mean, you're just kind of following their life and whatever they end up showing you, whether it's the inside, you know, the inside scoop on how they do something or, you know, how they, you know, getting the models dressed or putting their makeup on or something, which you would never be able to experience if that wasn't your world, I think kind of, you know, gives that little voyeurism, you know, into yeah. other people's lives that then draws you closer to them because you feel almost like you're more of a part of it. And I feel comfortable with that type of voyeurism because I feel like, you know, for most people they are willingly sort of putting that information yeah. out there. And I had to really, like, wean myself off of, like, gossip magazines a few years ago because I was so into, like, Us Weekly and people and all that stuff. And then I realized these are moments that are stolen from these people's days. Like, yes, yeah. they're famous, and yes, they're sort of participating in that industry, but at the same time, like, they're not asking to have somebody sit outside of their house with a telephoto lens and catch them as right. they take their garbage out. What, right. <laughs> whatever they put on the Internet, that's fair game. I mean, not for criticism, but it's fair game to, like, watch and participate in and be interested in because they're putting it out there. And so right. it makes me feel, like, a little bit okay to sort of be interested in people's personal lives, and I don't – not in design and people in music and those are the people that I look up to and so I love being able to see like what they do when they're not at the office or mm-hmm. things that go wrong while they're at the office like those <laughs> real world moments they just they make everyone feel a little bit closer together and that exactly. that's always a good feeling yeah I mean especially in this you know world where you can where everybody is so far away yet so close because of the internet Right? You yeah. Know, you can be talking to somebody in, you know, England in one minute and then in New York the next minute, you know, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't really phase you anymore or a per, one, it's like I do that all the time and it, you know, it doesn't, I don't really think about often where people yeah. are when I'm talking to them. Um, you know, it's when you get the, well, it's 2 o'clock in the morning here. Can I call you later? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't think you'd answer your, you know, Facebook Messenger at this time. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so having, having those moments of looking into people's lives, I think really, I agree, helps bring the world closer together and, um, yeah. and makes it not just not feel as ginormous as it actually really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and do you do, do you, do you do a lot of your social media yourself or is that one of the things that you job out now? Nope, that's me. I do yeah. all of our social media. Um, Caitlin, who is kind of my right hand for the business side, will occasionally preload touts for like Facebook, but only for the things that are like sharing information from Designs Fund. So we always sort of shout out all of the posts that are on the site that day, which is only usually three or four things. And then the rest are always like interesting articles that I've seen or personal updates or just like whatever else I think is interesting that has nothing to do with Design Sponge. And I do all of those and I do all of our Instagram feed and the Facebook live videos. And I just, for me, I don't think it's the only option for a brand to have the main person do everything, but I personally just actually really enjoy the engagement that exists Mm -hmm. on social media. So for me, it's a fun thing and I I really like doing it. Yeah, I would, I would, I mean, it seems like it's you that does it. Um, But you know, it's so people, like we were saying, people can train people to be them, you know, find, find their voice, learn it, you know, do it for them. So you, just you never know when you look at somebody's business, you know, whether, whether it is them or not. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Um, and so, so with all the people um, working for you now, like how, how does that work for you as, as the big boss? You know, like how do you, how do you manage your uh, time and 
um, you know, are you are you the one kind of overseeing everybody, or you know, is everyone scattered around the country? You guys have a main office space. You know, how, how do you handle all that? We had briefly had an office a couple of years ago, and it was a hot mess. It was just like nobody wanted to be there. We all thought we wanted it. We signed a three-year lease, and then I would say six months into it, we all just wanted to go back to working at home. So mm. that was a, a good but expensive lesson to learn that I think we all worked for the previous seven years or eight years as we sort of remote freelancers, and we should go back to that. So we've gone back to everybody working remotely. And the majority of our core members, we live nowhere near each other. So I'm in upstate New York. Caitlin's in West Virginia. Kelly, who's now our team manager, lives in um, Aliso Viejo in California. And Christina, who's our food editor, who at this point I think is my oldest employee or longest standing employee, lives in Italy. So we are in different time zones all over the place. Yeah. But, you know, thanks, thanks be to Google because like, right, without that, I, I don't know what I would do. And we basically use every, you know, Gmail platform available to communicate and stay in touch. And we use, like, Google documents to, like, have our editorial calendar be open to everybody. And so it's worked out well for us, and it saves us a heck of a lot of money and overhead. So yeah. we fully embrace that and – you know, at one point it was nice to have like a beautiful showpiece of an office to invite people to, but we're all, well, a lot of us are mostly just homebodies and really enjoy being able to work from mm-hmm. home. So we just embrace that. And our core team is actually pretty small. Um, I think there's maybe four or five of us who contribute on like a daily basis. And the rest of us are, I would say then there's a second group of maybe three or four writers who write on a weekly basis. And then we have an even smaller group of people who contribute maybe once a month. Um, but we we found that we really enjoy working with a smaller amount of people who contribute more frequently because I, it's weird. I just found that people who write once a month just tend to be more behind on deadlines or mm. just kind of forget about things. And at this point, I just I don't have any spare room in my schedule to micromanage somebody to make sure, sure. they're on time. And it's easier to just kind of constantly check in with the person that you know you're already going to be talking to every week anyway. So we have a, a small team, but in preparation for my book tour, we basically decided to change the structure of the team. And Kelly, who lives in California, is now our team manager, and she's also our copy editor. So she checks in at the end of every day. when we're, We've already kind of closed up our laptops, and she'll edit all the posts for the next day or the week before. And then she'll sort of check in with all of the freelancers to make sure everybody's on time and that everyone's okay. And anything that's kind of a big flag gets sent up to me. But for the most part, I kind of let that go I would say like a year ago. So I would say for the last 11 years, I was the main person who talked to every single writer every day. I like managed all of our invoices. I paid everybody. Like all of that was wow. my job. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, oh, I'm not doing a good job at all of that because it's just <laughs> too much. So that was one of the most important and still the most difficult place to delegate because how people feel when they work here is so important to me. And and Kelly's doing a great job, and so I'm very lucky in that regard. But it's very difficult to hand down that very special part of how do we communicate for the people who give us the sure. most. And that's difficult. And it's just a lot of back and forth and a lot of kind of just trusting somebody and letting them find their own style. And so far, knock on wood, that's gone really well for us. That's great. I mean, it all, and it all goes back to wanting to, you know, what you did your whole book about. And I love the whole circle of how you run your business and your life and the, you know, looking into the lives of people and being curious about the people around you and wanting them all to be successful and happy. 
and yeah. you know, and and I just love that you carry that all the way through your life. Thank you. Um, just make it makes it makes it so so much. I don't know. Makes it's making me smile. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. And yeah, and I want so let's just talk a quick a little bit about your book tour because I had seen it on your website sure um, a while ago, but I don't see it there now. So I just wanted to have you sort of talk a little bit about where you're going and let everyone know where they can go on sure. your site to find out about that. Sure. So everything they could ever need to know about the book or the book tour is at designsponge.com slash book. It's very simple. Oh, um, excellent. And that, that has all of our tour dates and the places to buy tickets, and it has all of the pre-order links and the ordering links for the book for across the world, not just in the U.S. Um, and the book comes out on October 4th, and I will hit the road on October 5th. And I'm going to 13 cities this year across the U.S. Um, so far, we don't have any international travel um, but all of it from, you know, Seattle and Los Angeles all the way down to Atlanta. And I'm going to be hosting a series of panel discussions that are made up of women who are featured in the book, but also women who run great businesses in those towns. And we're going to be having very frank and open discussions about the challenges of running your own business and advice they have for the next generation or anybody who wants to start their own business. Um, and then we'll have a book signing afterwards. But my hope is that it will feel like just a series of meeting up with friends across the country. So I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I know. I wish it was when Denver I could come. <laughs> I know. And we did, the, the first time I did my first book, we went to Denver, and we had such a great time there. But I learned in that book tour that 30 cities is just too many cities oh, for yeah. me. I and I imagine. was diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes in January of this year, which has been like being thrown a huge curveball. Oh, and yeah. So traveling has been really difficult for me to maintain the sort of healthy um, blood sugar numbers for myself. So I really mm. had to be careful about how much I traveled, especially in a row. So, um, so it's a smaller tour this year, but I'm hoping that that means I can kind of live in the moment a bit more instead of being like, mm -hmm. okay, in four hours I'm going to be on another plane. Oh, that's, yeah, I totally get it. I, I see you're going to Marin, so I'm going to uh, tell my mom. <laughs> oh, tell thanks. <laughs> yeah. At Book Passage, that's one of the, it's a great bookstore. Um, oh, good. Yeah, we're it. excited to work with so many indie bookstores. That, that means yeah. a lot to me, so I'm excited. Yeah, um, yeah darn, I'll be there a month later <laughs> for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so, so let's just, um, I don't want to keep you too long, so let's talk about like kind of what's next for you and Design Sponge. Sure. I honestly have no answer to that question. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm in this. I'm in this place where I think, think the one upside of being diagnosed with a chronic illness has been that it really forces me to live in the moment every single day. Mm. And I used to try to plan things out, and, and, I mean, and then the Internet would just laugh at me because everything changes like every six months. So right. <laughs> I've given up on that. I've just decided that like, I'm going to try to do the best with where we are right now, and as things come up and seem exciting, we're going to take those things on. But I'm somebody who tends to like run into a project head first without planning, and I just don't want to do that anymore. So mm. I think once I get to the book tour, I'm going to see what did I learn from that experience? Did, did I discover anything new that I think I could help with? And I'm most motivated by seeing problems that I think I might be able to help with in my community. So I have a feeling that I'll come away from that book tour with sort of some new ideas and new goals. And so I'm just going to leave, leave the door open for whatever those might be. 
I love that, and that seems like a really wise decision. Um, you know, I mean, just, just you know, given given your your situation, yeah, I had I know exactly how you feel. I I had a little uh, I had a pinched nerve in my neck this spring, and I was very debilitated. And as a single mom with two kids, it was very difficult um, to be so debilitated. And I once I was as I lay on the couch for almost two months. Um, with my laptop on my belly, <laughs> um, I, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm pregnant again. And because um, I spent a lot of my pregnancy that way, <laughs> with yeah. I have twins. And, um, I, uh, and I realized at the end of that that I had to, you know, clearly something, I had to change something about my life. And, and I, have, I really gave me a lot of time to think about and look at how I wanted to change and move my life too. So I, I totally understand where you're at in your life. <laughs> um, and, and, it's, and it's something that many, many people have to look at at different times in their lives. And I think it's, it's a real lesson, you know, in, in being able to take, take that look that you may have never had the opportunity or the reason, you know, to, to look at, you know, and it opens so yeah. many other doors, doors for you and really gives you, you know, food for thought in, in how you live and, and, who, who, you're, who you hang out with and how you spend your life and your time and, you know, what you really want to do with your life. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so I commend you for that. Well, thank you so much. And I'm thank really you. looking forward to uh, see your book coming out and um, wish that I was closer to one of your tours. But there might be others or maybe I'm just going to hop on a plane. <laughs> um, and uh, my, mom, my mother would love it. And... Um, and I'll be like, surprise, visit. Um, and, uh, and I uh, thank you again and really look forward to talking to you another time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Have a really Bye. great book tour. Thank you.